Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. AINC programming is brought to you in part by Weissman Family Dental in Boulder, Colorado. For over 25 years, Weissman Family Dental has been providing high-quality dentistry. They offer regular checkups, emergency care, and a wide range of specialty services. They also have staff that speak Spanish. If you are looking for a new dentist, find them at WeissmanFamilyDental.com or call them at 303-494-0101 and tell them Audio Information Network of Colorado sent you. Thank you for joining us for the Thursday, September 28, 2023 reading of the Boulder Weekly. My name is Eric Levine. News. No strings attached. Boulder's Guaranteed Income Pilot will begin payments in 2024 by Kaylee Harder, September 28, 2023. The saying goes that if you give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day, but teach a man to fish and he'll eat for life. But what if said man already knows how to fish, but nothing's biting? Or maybe the man doesn't have fishing gear. Sometimes giving people metaphorical fish is exactly the help they need. Soon, 200 Boulder residents will receive no-strings-attached monthly payments of $500 for two years through a guaranteed income pilot project called Elevate Boulder that the city hopes will improve financial stability, reduce food insecurity, and boost mental well-being for low-income residents. The pilot is just one of several dozen projects across the country challenging traditional American notions of what public benefit programs should look like. Guaranteed income differs from programs like Temporary Assistance for Needy Families TANF, and Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program SNAP, which often require cumbersome reporting and have myriad qualifying requirements that experts say can become barriers to those who need the benefits most. For those who do qualify for these programs, making even a little bit more money can lead to disqualification, a phenomenon known as the welfare cliff. Elizabeth Crow, Boulder's Deputy Director of Housing and Human Services, says that a general unfamiliarity with the burdensome conditions of programs like SNAP and TANF can lead those who don't need assistance to wonder why these supplements aren't enough for struggling families. Guaranteed income programs like Boulder's provide an extra layer of support without all the hoop jumping. Guaranteed, in, quote, guaranteed income is a potential solution when you add it to other benefits that enables people to get more money in their pockets to take care of the needs of themselves and their families and the dignity that comes with having that choice, unquote, she says. To qualify for Boulder's pilot program, participants must be 18 years or older, reside within city limits, have been impacted by COVID, 
and make between 30 to 60 percent of Boulder's area median income between 27,900 and 55,800 for a household of one and increasingly by household size. Participants must be Boulder residents for the duration of the program, but there's no continued income reporting, meaning participants who start making more or less money after the program's start will still receive payments. Crow says the city expects to receive thousands of applications. Participants will be selected through a randomized lottery, and applications will open later this fall with payments starting in January 2024. The program is primarily funded by $3 million in federal COVID relief funds and more recently, a $70,000 grant from the Community Foundation of Boulder County, which also launched a fund that community members can contribute to. Indra Indira Kumari, a medical assistant, Nepali immigrant, and low-income Boulder resident who is part of the task force that helped build the pilot, says receiving $500 a month could prevent her from having to make difficult choices about what she and her family need most. Quote, My kids have got, even now, quite a bit of medical needs, Kumari says, even with two incomes, I cannot meet their needs. In order to provide for them, I had to kind of skip my meals. Had I had some supplemental support, I could have been better off attending to those kinds of medical needs." Unquote. Crow says that in addition to providing these types of immediate and tangible benefits to participants, she also hopes the program will help city processes become more equitable and challenge assumptions some community members might have about one another. Across the country, direct cash assistance is hardly a new concept. It's been studied for decades with many investigations showing positive outcomes, but in recent years, it's taken on a new prominence in the public eye. In 2019, a pilot program in Stockton, California, was one of the first guaranteed income projects to launch in the U.S. Similar to Boulder's pilot, the Stockton project, known as SEED, S-E-E-D, provided $500 to 125 residents who lived in a neighborhood with a median income at or below the city's median household income for two years. The idea of no-strings-attached cash payments also gained traction when 2020 presidential candidate Andrew Yang ran on the platform of unconditional payments of $1,000 to all Americans, a concept called Universal Basic Income, UBI, which is often used interchangeably with guaranteed income, but differs in that it provides cash to all citizens rather than a target population. Stimulus checks during COVID, the Earned Income Tax Credit, and the Child Tax Credit are also examples of cash assistance programs at the federal level. Since the Stockton pilot, more than three dozen guaranteed income pilots have launched across the country, from Birmingham, Alabama, to Newark, New Jersey, to San Diego, California. Preliminary results from a pilot in Denver offering guaranteed income 
to people experience homelessness show that participants used the money to meet immediate basic needs and plan for the future with positive outcomes for their mental health and children uh, of family members. Stephen Nunez, who was the lead researcher on guaranteed income at the Jane Family Institute and has more than a decade of experience in program evaluation, says the tidal wave of guaranteed income pilots will be most valuable in answering structural questions about benefits and generating policy momentum, as decades of research has already borne out the benefits for participants. Quote, the general thrust of it is, are guaranteed income recipients going to quit their jobs? No. Are they going to do drugs? No. Does it make them better off? Yes, Nunez says. We already know all that, and we don't need more re research to do that. It's really more about an opportunity to share with the general public what researchers already know, but then also to do that coordination to make sure that it's not just a bunch of pilots." Unquote. What will they spend it on? While critics of guaranteed income programs argue that no-strings-attached cash assistance disincentivizes recipients from working or that participants will use the funds irresponsibly, data suggests otherwise. <clears throat> the SEED pilot, for example, found that participants were significantly more likely to find full-time employment compared to the control group. It also revealed that participants were better able to cover unexpected expenses, improve emotional and mental health, and created new opportunities for, quote, self-determination, choice, goal-setting, and risk-taking, unquote. The seed pilot showed that the greatest share of the money was spent on basic needs like food, clothes, home goods, auto costs, and utilities, while less than 1% was spent on alcohol or tobacco. Kamari says that if she is part of Boulder's pilot, she would likely use the money for medical bills, housing, and food, as well as for entertainment, like taking her family to the movies or out to dinner, something she says she hasn't been able to do in ages. <clears throat> Nicole Borelli, another task force member and the director of housing and economic justice at Boulder-based Domestic Violence Support nonprofit Safe House Progressive Alliance for Nonviolence, says she's experienced what it's like to be in survival mode firsthand. Quote, you're so focused on I need to get a place to live. I need to get food on the table. I need to find three jobs so I can pay for it, she says. Having a little bit of wiggle room, that opportunity to take a breath, to take your kid out to a movie, it may not seem like a big deal to a lot of people, but it's huge. You need that to function as a parent. If you don't take care of yourself, <clears throat> you can't take care of your kids." Unquote. However, Jeffrey Zacks, a CU Boulder professor of economics who specializes in labor economics, says guaranteed income programs have the potential for disincentivizing work. Quote, when you help people, you diminish, at least slightly, their incentive to help themselves, unquote, he says. Still, he says it's unlikely to occur on a large scale. Quote, 
there aren't that many welfare queens. That really doesn't happen very much, and it's not going to happen with this program, Zach says. $6,000 annually is not a lot to live on, especially in Boulder, unquote. Nunez says that in addition to the administrative burden associated with other safety net programs, various requirements can also be, quote, paternalistic and insulting, unquote, and, quote, suggest a distrust, unquote, of those receiving benefits. Nunez points out the racism and classism baked into the distrust, some of which dates back to Regan-era welfare queen narratives that have led to benefits being, quote, even more conditional and even more restrictive, unquote. Crow says there's a pervasive belief in American society that, quote, if you don't have enough means to support your family, you must have done something wrong, unquote. Quote, Oftentimes, that is extended to or sourced from a belief that people who are black or brown inherently don't have the ability to make good financial decisions, or you wouldn't be in that position, Crow says, as opposed to government systems that intentionally prevent black and brown folks from being able to acquire and maintain wealth, unquote. Nothing about us without us. <clears throat> In building the pilot, nine community members who have experienced being low income in Boulder or work with low income populations served on a task force to weigh in on program design and implementation. Part of that, Crow says, was working to make the application process dignified. Kumari says she wanted to make sure that other members of the Nepali community could access the application regardless of language, address, or immigration status. Quote, I have gone through that and I did not want the same feeling of invisibility towards my other community folks, unquote, she says. <clears throat> The city is also contracting five constituent-led organizations to help community members with the application process. The organizations serve populations that are disproportionately impacted by income disparities, including Latinx, Black, Nepali, LGBTQ, and disabled community members. Crow says task force members helped to make decisions about various trade-offs, like how long the program would want run, how many people could participate, and how much money could be provided based on the project's budget. Quote, Having their thoughts, their hearts, their expertise, their wisdom, and their collaborative spirit to really talk to and listen to each other was really critical, unquote, Crow says. Scaling up. When it comes to making guaranteed income programs a more permanent part of the social safety net, Nunez says locally based programs could prove difficult. Quote, it wouldn't make sense for every city in the country to have its own little cash assistance program, he says. Cities don't usually have the infrastructure to implement it, and they don't necessarily have control of the purse strings, unquote. For Zachs, the CU Boulder economist, the biggest strain of scaling up a local project would be on the city budget. Quote, 
The bigger you make the program, the more attractive it is for people to take advantage of it, he says. 200 people, the odds that anybody who's eligible will get it are quite small. But if those odds go up, then one of the problems the city's going to run into is that people will move here in order to take advantage of it." Unquote. Nunez says that on the large scale, it makes sense for guaranteed income programs to be administered at the state and federal levels. He also says that in order to remove some of the administrative burden, programs could pay all individuals, then tax the money back based on income. And while there's not a huge body of research, Nunez says guaranteed income programs have the potential to benefit the economy writ large, citing costs of child poverty, the criminal justice system, and homelessness that direct cash assistance could mitigate. Still, the benefits of guaranteed income have limits, Nunez says, and it's important to think about how the programs will interact with other systems. For those, quote, for those who think that guaranteed income is the solution to everything, I'll just say, if there isn't a well-functioning market, it's not going to solve any problems, he says. Giving people a bunch of money and just saying, here you go, now you don't have to worry about health care, is not the solution. That is not a well-functioning market. It is not a replacement for health insurance for a strong unemployment insurance system." Unquote. Nunez hopes the pilots and the stories that come out of them will expose deficiencies in the social safety net and help the general public and policymakers change how they think about poverty and its solutions. Quote, the truth of the matter is money's going to run out, he says. The pilots are going to end in two or three years, and then the question is, what do we have to show for it? We want to be able to say, we took this opportunity to connect, connect different groups and push for legislative change." Unquote. For Crow, the pilot is an opportunity for the community to lean into empathy. Quote, this is a very unique opportunity to really try to address problems of economic inequity at its core by raising the level of income people have and doing it in a way that leans further into trust and dignity, Crow says. We really encourage others to be curious and be willing to learn some new things, and hopefully we'll have a project that is well worthy of continuation post-pilot. On screen, it's basic documentary screening and community conversation, Tuesday, October 10, 6 to 8 p.m. at E-Town Hall, 1535 Spruce Street in Boulder. RSVP or learn more at bit.ly slash its basic doc. That's I T S B A S I C D O C. News Boulder Ganic Free Heat An energy efficient building standard is on the rise in Boulder by Kaylee Harder, September 21, 2023. The home Matt Brill and Eric Moore are building on Forest Avenue in North Boulder doesn't look much different than any other home construction site, aside from the fact that it's blue instead of the typical green or white of mid-construction homes. 
but step inside the home and you might notice the several inch thick front door or the signs that say no drilling, airtight construction, and no cutting, airtight membranes. The floor to ceiling windows throughout the house are triple pane and even the doggy door for their white Havanese fin is being constructed to specific standards. That's because Moore and Brill's five-bedroom home will be Passive House Certified, a green building standard that's airtight and uber energy efficient, thanks to measures like high-performance doors, continuous insulation, and orientation that makes efficient use of the sun's heat, and a ventilation system that supplies fresh air throughout the house. The couple's home is on track to be the first certified Passive House in the city of Boulder, but if trends across the state and county country are any indication, they won't be the only one for long. Passive house buildings typically save between 75% and 90% on heating and cooling related energy costs, according to the Passive House Institute, PHI. The Forest Avenue home will be 100% electric and solar panels on the roof will offset the electric usage, so Brill says they expect zero energy bills. In the similarly sized house they currently live in, the couple estimates they pay about $250 a month. And while sustainability was a factor, Brill and Moore say that indoor air quality, quietness provided by the thick walls, and constant temperature throughout the house were what got them excited about the building practice. The couple expects to move into their home with the three-year-old son early next year. Quote, it's not just about a greener house, Brill says. It's like, what better quality and durability can I build into my house? Unquote. That quality doesn't come without a price. Brill estimates building their home will be about 10% more expensive than a code-built residence. Ken Levinson, executive director of the New York-based Passive House Network, says construction can cost anywhere from 5% to 15% more than a code-built house, depending on the size of the project and the team's experience. Most homeowners make up for that cost in energy savings in about 8 to 10 years, Levinson says. <clears throat> a growing trend. Back when Andrew Mickler constructed Colorado's first passive house in 2015, which he still lives in, he says such homes in Colorado were, quote, as exotic as a peacock in a forest, unquote. That wasn't the case worldwide. The Passive House Institute, or Passive House in Europe, was founded in Germany in 1996. Europe now that has more than 13 times the amount of certified passive house space than North and South America combined, according to the Institute. That number includes not just single-family homes, but also other buildings like schools, offices, and multifamily homes. Estimates in passive house databases can be incomplete since registration is voluntary and not everyone who builds a passive house structure decides to get it certified. One map shows four certified passive houses in Colorado, but Mickler, who runs a passive house design firm called Hyperlocal Workshop, 
estimates there are around 20 houses that meet the standard in Colorado, and about 20 more in the works. That doesn't include houses being built to the Passive House U.S. PHIUS standard, a similar but distinct certification through what was once an approved affiliate of PHI. A messy separation between the two orgs in 2011 resulted in a different standard and pathway for certification. Mickler credits the rise in passive house building in Colorado in part to the realization that the state's climate works well with the design principles and a growing network of professionals who specialize in passive house construction. Quote, we have a lot of sunshine here and sunshine is free heat in the wintertime. And then we have delightfully cold nights, Mickler says. So all we do is capture some of the heat in the day and save it at night, unquote. Mickler says the homes are also more resilient, making them increasingly appealing as climate extremes and disasters become more common. At least 25 construction projects in the Marshall Fire Rebuild area are pursuing Passive House principles, according to Passive House Rocky Mountain, a regional chapter of the Passive House Network. Those homes will be eligible for a $37,500 rebate from Excel, the highest level of rebate the company is offering rebuilding homeowners for various energy efficiency measures. Some of those homes will be part of Mickler's Restore Project, pre-designed Firewise homes that meet passive house standards, pre-priced at $550,000 before upgrades and customization. Looking forward, Many proponents would like to see passive house standards incorporated in building and energy codes, and in some places like Massachusetts and Brussels, Belgium, that's already a reality for certain building types. Quote, passive house really isn't the ceiling of what's possible, Levinson says. It needs to be the floor of what we're doing because it's just providing fundamental benefits that everybody should have, unquote. The city of Boulder requires new buildings over 3,000 square feet, like Brill and Moore's home, to be net zero energy. Similarly, unincorporated Boulder County has a net zero requirement for new buildings over 5,000 square feet. But Josh Hansen, the city's Energy Code Compliance Principal Examiner, says it's unlikely Boulder would codify passive house requirements anytime soon. Quote, energy code is a minimum, he says. If you want to do a passive house, that's above and beyond, and I applaud you, I applaud you for doing it. But every person shouldn't be required to do that because there's a cost to that. Unquote. He says, LEED, LEED, is the most common green building certification the city sees but that passive house certification is, quote, head and shoulders above a lot of the other green programs, energy efficiency programs out there, unquote. Like Mickler, Brill hopes to be part of the growth of passive house builds across the state and has started a company, Bowen Build, to help others construct according to passive house standards. Brill says there's already several projects in Boulder County on the horizon for his company, including in the Marshall Fire burn area. 
Quote, I think it's just kind of moving home building into that electric era, Brill says. As cars are evolving, I think homes need to come along with them. We still have a long way to go, but there's glimmers of hope I'm seeing. Homeowners are asking for it. Builders and architects are starting to learn about it. And I think that combination will help to propel this standard that's better for the planet and better for the people living in these." Unquote. On the bill, Passive House Network Conference, October 4 through 5, at McNichols Civic Center Building, 144 West Colfax Avenue, Denver. Cost is $200 to $375. More information at phnconference.org. News. A move to cut drug prices has patients with rare diseases worried. Colorado's move to cut drug prices has patients with rare disease worried by Markian Harluk, September 21, 2023. Editor's note. This story was first published in KFF Health News. For people with cystic fibrosis, like Sabrina Walker, Trichafta has been a life changer. Before she started taking the drug, she would wind up in the hospital for weeks at a time until antibiotics could eliminate the infections in her lungs. Every day, she would wear a vest that shook her body to loosen the mucus buildup. One particularly bad flare-up, known as pulmonary exacerbation, had her coughing up blood in 2019, so she was put on the newly approved breakthrough medication. Within a month, her lung function increased by 20%, she said, and her health improved. Before she started taking Trichafta, she could count on three to four hospitalizations a year. Over the four years on the medication, she has been hospitalized only once. Quote, I was spending hours a day doing airway clearance and breathing treatments, and that has been significantly reduced, said the 37-year-old Erie, Colorado mother. I've gained hours back in my day, unquote. Now she runs and hikes in the thin Colorado air and works a full-time job. Other patients have seen similar gains with the drug therapy, allowing many to resume regular lives and even take themselves off waiting lists for a lung transplant. Yet Walker and scores of other Colorado patients with cystic fibrosis are worried they could lose access to that transformative medication. A state board charged with addressing the affordability of the most expensive prescription drugs has chosen Trikafta among its first five drugs to review, and it could move to cut the medication's average in-state annual price of approximately $200,000, accounting for both insurers, contributions, and patients' out-of-pocket costs. Drug makers, including Trikafta's manufacturer, Vertex Pharmaceuticals, have said payment limits could hurt innovation and limit access, stoking panic among patients that the drug might no longer be sold in Colorado. Two of the drugs chosen by the state board, the rheumatoid arthritis treatment Enbrel and the psoriasis medication Stellara, 
also appear on the initial list of 10 drugs for which Medicare will negotiate prices. Any federally negotiated price reductions won't go into effect until 2026, and it's unclear how that effort will affect the work of Colorado's Prescription Drug Affordability Board in the interim. The state's board the State Board's choice of drugs to review elucidates one of the thorniest questions the group must wrangle with. Would lowering the price tag for rare disease medications lead manufacturers to pull out of the state or limit their availability? State officials contend that the high cost of prescription drugs puts them out of reach for some patients, while patients worry they'll lose access to a life-changing therapy and that a few dollars that fewer dollars will be available to develop breakthrough medications. And with affordability boards in other states poised to undergo similar exercises, what happens in Colorado could have implications nationwide. Quote, it just puts Trikafta as a whole at risk, Walker says. It would start here, but it could create a ripple effect, unquote. Cystic fibrosis is a genetic condition that causes the body to produce thick, sticky mucus that clogs the lungs and digestive system, leading to lung damage, infections, and malnutrition. It is a progressive disease that results in irreversible lung damage and a median age of death of 34 years. There is no cure. The disease affects fewer than 40,000 people in the U.S., including about 700 in Colorado. That means research and development costs are spread across a smaller number of patients than for more common conditions, such as the millions of people with heart disease or cancer. Officials from Vertex Pharmaceuticals declined a request for an interview, but company spokesperson Sarah D'Souza emailed a statement saying that, quote, the price of this medicine reflects its value to patients, the small number of people living with cystic fibrosis, the billions of dollars Vertex has invested to date to develop the first medicines to treat the underlying cause of cystic fibrosis, and the billions more we are investing in cystic fibrosis and other serious diseases, unquote. Setting an upper payment limit, the company said, could hinder access to drugs like Trikafta and curtail investment in scientific innovation and drug discovery. State officials counter that Vertex and other drug makers are resorting to fear-mongering to protect their profits. Colorado Insurance Commissioner Michael Conway said that whenever the state talks about saving people money on health care, the affected entity, be it a hospital, insurance company, or drug manufacturer, cries foul and claims there will be access problems. Quote, this is just from my vantage point, the pharmaceutical industry trying to scare people, he, unquote, he said. Colorado's Prescription Drug Affordability Board has been working for more than a year to sort through 604 drugs eligible for review, with 17 data points for each to create a prioritized list. In the end, they decided to focus this year only on drugs that had no brand name competition or gen generic alternatives that could lower costs. Besides Trikafta, Enbrel, and Stellara, 
the board will review the affordability of the antiretroviral medication Genvoya used to treat HIV and another psoriasis treatment, Cosentix. Of those five, Trikafta has the highest average annual costs, but the lowest five-year increase in price and the fewest patients taking it. The board's review of the five drugs will happen over its next three to four meetings this year and early next year, allowing all stakeholders, including patients, pharmacies, suppliers, and manufacturers, to provide feedback on whether the drugs are indeed unaffordable and what a reasonable price should be. Any cost limits wouldn't take effect until next year at the earliest. The board looked at what patients were paying out of pocket for their medicines using a database that captures all the insurance claims in the state. But that data did not account for patient assistance programs through which manufacturers reimburse patients for out-of-pocket costs. Such programs boost manufacturer sales of drugs because insurance covers most of the cost and patients otherwise might not be able to afford them. Through the first half of the year, Vertex reported profits of $1.6 billion with 89% of its revenue coming from Trikafta, marketed as Caftrio in Europe. At the beginning of the year, Vertex decreased copay assistance for people with cystic fibrosis in what the company said was a response to insurers limiting patients' ability to apply copay assistance to their deductibles. Lila Cummings, director of the Colorado Board, said its staff could not find any entity that collects data on patient assistance programs, so those figures were not available to the board. Once they begin reviewing the individual medications, board members will dig into what extra financial help patients are getting. Cummings also said the board is hoping manufacturers will convey in good faith what might prompt them to leave the Colorado market. When Trikafta came up second on the Colorado Board's prioritized list of drugs eligible for review, patients and advocacy groups flooded the board with pleas to leave pricing for the medication and other drugs for rare diseases untouched. Quote, people are scared, Walker said. If you look at all the drugs out there, it's one that has been so transformational that I think it will go down in history for how positively it's impacted our population as a whole." Unquote. According to the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, lung exacerbations dropped 65% and lung transplants dropped 80% after the drug's approval. More patients have been able to work attend school or start a family. Clinicians have reported a baby boom among patients who take Trikafta. A study published this year showed that two-thirds of people with cystic fibrosis struggled with finances, experiencing debt, food insecurity, or trouble paying for household or health expenses. The survey was conducted in 2019 before U.S. Food and Drug Administration approval of Trikafta. Years ago, the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation invested in Aurora Biosciences, later acquired by Vertex Pharmaceuticals, 
to promote development of cystic fibrosis therapies. The foundation completed the sale of its royalty rights in 2020. Mary Dwight, Chief Policy and Advocacy Officer for the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, said the board should, quote, ensure its review of Trikafta accounts for the overall value this drug has for someone with cystic fibrosis, including the impact on an individual's long-term health and well-being, unquote. There is no guarantee that the Colorado board will take action on Trikafta. State officials have stressed that board members are solely focused on improving access and wouldn't jeopardize the availability of the medication. Quote, we have a history of being able to save people money on health care that doesn't lead to access problems, Conway said. We're not talking about these companies losing money at all. We're talking about making it more affordable so that more Coloradans can get access to the pharmaceuticals needs that they have. Unquote. But Walker remains unconvinced. Quote, they had so much testimony on their call, and they still selected Trikafta, she said. Everyone was just saying how important this drug is, and it didn't matter. It still got pushed through. Unquote. Entertainment, arts and culture, a people's history, widening the lens on Colorado's black past, present, and future, by Jesse J. Gray, September 28, 2023. It's no great secret. Colorado is not the first place that springs to most people's minds when it comes to racial diversity. That's especially true in Boulder County, where U.S. Census data suggests white people make up nearly 90% of the population. But when it comes to the grand arc of black life here in our little pocket on the front range, those numbers don't tell the whole story. Quote, there are, there were, and there will be black people in Colorado. Unquote. Minister Glenda Strong Robinson told a packed house to an eruption of cheers at the city's historic Second Baptist Church during a September 11 NAACP Boulder County meeting. The night's agenda centered on discussion of an upcoming joint exhibition with the Museum of Boulder, exploring local African-American history from pre-statehood to the present. But there's more to proclaiming Colorado's black history, the kaleidoscopic and community-driven show on display at the Downtown History Center through September 2025, than simply underscoring the existence of African-American people in the Centennial State. It's also about broadening the frame on the types of stories that get told about the cultural legacies forged in the fire of the African diaspora. Quote, when people think of us, they think of disasters. They think of slavery. They don't think of the joy that we inhabit, unquote says Adderley Grant Lord, a Lafayette-based visual artist who curated the exhibition section on the cosmic black cultural tradition known as Afrofuturism. Quote, no matter how bad it gets, we know how to celebrate life and we know how to keep moving forward. We know how to go to the trenches and come out looking pretty, unquote. I see a blessing, 
With this more holistic image of blackness in mind, visitors to the new Museum of Boulder exhibition can expect to encounter the full fidelity of African-American experiences in Colorado, from pain to perseverance, excellence to exclusion, and points in between. According to exhibition co-project director and lead curator Adrian Miller, a Denver-based cuisine writer dubbed the Soul Food Scholar, the show's encyclopedic quality, featuring everything from a recreation of Colorado's largest black homesteading settlement to the trash picker used by Zaid Atkinson in his viral encounter with a Boulder police officer, was a daunting but sacred task. Quote, one of the challenges for the exhibit is it's a vast story to tell. There's a lot of rich African-American history, unquote, Miller said during a guided preview and feedback session on September 22. Quote, so we did a community survey to find out what people wanted, and that's how we narrowed it down to the themes of building community, social justice, civil rights, arts and entertainment, business and enterprise, and Afrofuturism, unquote. On that first score, the exhibition launches with an immersive recreation of Boulder's Second Baptist Church, a cornerstone of the city's black faith community since its humble beginnings in 1908. Furnished with loaned items from longtime members, the installation includes audio and video from the church's famous choir and a pew from the sanctuary where visitors can sit and reflect. Quote, we feel it's necessary for us to tell our story in the context of the Colorado story as it relates to black history, unquote, says Second Baptist Church pastor James Ray. Quote, this is an opportunity to let the community know how good God has been to this particular church, which has been around for over 115 years. So I, as I see this exhibit, I see a blessing, unquote. Black futures, but it's not all blessings in proclaiming Colorado's black history. Dovetailing with its spotlight on black accomplishments and local change makers, like campaign ephemera from Boulder's first African-American mayor, Penfield Tate II, alongside a bevy of homegrown stars, leaders, and titans of industry, the show doesn't shy away from the more gruesome aspects of the state's past. That much is clear upon entry to the exhibition's social justice wing, which greets visitors with the recreation of a plaque commemorating 15-year-old Preston Porter Jr., who was lynched by a white mob in 1900 outside Lyman. The grim spectacle of the child's brutal killing was attended by more than 300 people, offering a stark reminder of the anti-black violence baked into public life in the Centennial State and beyond. Quote, for whatever reason, when people think about racism, they think, oh, that's a southern U.S. thing. But it's everywhere, Miller says, <clears throat> to invoke the old Malcolm X quote, the South is anywhere from Canada going down. We want to talk about the legacy of how African-Americans, despite being terrorized, were able to carve out community and assert their humanity, unquote. 
through the heavy veil of all this darkness, proclaiming Colorado's black history, dwells in the light, from the hope of the first black child born in Boulder to the soulful sounds of the Second Baptist Church, the idea is to lead visitors to the museum's first four gallery space, thrumming with the power of the past and the possibility of what's to come. Quote, the amount of soul and energy that is in us, we live in Boulder and it's not shown, unquote, says Grant Strong, whose curation closes the exhibition with a colorful pop of visual artwork inviting visitors to imagine a black future. This is a way of telling people who we are, unquote. On view, Proclaiming Colorado's Black History, September 30 through September 2025, at the Museum of Boulder, 2205 Broadway. Cuisine, nibbles, falling for pumpkin spice. Now 20 years old, a seasonal Starbucks staple unleashes a plague upon us every autumn. By John Lendorf, September 21, 2023. There's nothing intrinsically evil about pumpkin spice lattes. However, when Starbucks introduced the seasonal drink 20 years ago, it unleashed a torrent of pumpkin pie spice horrors upon our land. Now PSL is legion, with cult-like fans addicted to their seasonal dose of spice. The climax comes October 1, National Pumpkin Spice Day. If you love pumpkin spice everything, you might want to look away. I am not of your clan, because I actually like pumpkin pie. You should also be aware that Boulder County has been neck deep in pumpkin spice culture since before the turn of the last century. For Thanksgiving 1896, the Daily Camera published a spicy pumpkin pie recipe. Quote, take four cups of this strained pumpkin Add four cups of rich milk, a teaspoonful of salt, two of ginger, one of nutmeg, and one of mace, a small cup of sugar, and four or five eggs according to their size. Quote, you had to come up with your own crust. For decades, the Boulder area produced bumper crops of pumpkins to be canned, and the original pumpkin pie days drew tens of thousands to Longmont for pastry, coffee, and horse races. These days, you can find the spice everywhere in everything, from Boulder Bakes Pumpkin Spice Cupcakes to Rush Bowl's Pumpkin Spice Bowl, Upslope Brewing's Pumpkin Ale, and Cocomel's Pumpkin Spice Coconut Caramels. And if you've burned yourself out on the original, try a spiced pumpkin latte with pumpkin seed milk from Peak Press Juicery in Longmont. Some places, like Caribou Coffee, advertise PSL and other hot beverages, quote, made with real pumpkin, unquote, which sounds like weird pumpkin soup. I wouldn't be so anti-PSL if it wasn't for the false advertising. Most pumpkin spice products contain oodles of sugar and zero pumpkin, a vegetable few Americans like and consume anyway. Many Americans only eat pumpkin pie on Thanksgiving Day. Ask the flavors they favor in a pie, and pumpkin comes up only 10% of the time in national surveys. Besides, the pumpkin pies we eat are made with a variety of butternut squash. 
you have to wonder how far Starbucks would have gotten with butternut squash spice lattes. Finding the right pumpkin spice. Pumpkin pie spice only exists as a seasoning idea, not a hard and fast recipe. Every mixture is different and it always tastes better when fresh. Avery Riffle has no conscious memory of the pre-PSL era, but she welcomes the season as manager of Boulder's Savory Spice Shop. She guides shoppers directly to a shelf featuring the store's pumpkin pie spice, a mixture of two types of cinnamon plus ginger, nutmeg, allspice, and cloves that leaves a tingle on the tongue. Riffle points out that pumpkin spice is just one of many related blends. The shop's baking spice is similar, minus the cloves. Georgia peach spice, spiced vanilla bean sugar, and Mount Baker chai seasoning are variations on the theme. The Savory Spice website includes 20-plus pumpkin spice-infused recipes, ranging from chipotle pumpkin soup to pumpkin pie. Quote, People do love their pumpkin pie spice, Riffle says. I think most of them use it in coffee, but also in cookies and ice cream. I'm not a huge pumpkin spice girl. I'm more to the savory side and lean towards herb or paprika spice blends, unquote. Just say no and drink chai. Recent seasoning atrocities like pumpkin spice spam <laughs> and pumpkin spice massages may have prompted Krispy Kreme's recent tongue in glazed cheek pumpkin spice purchase protection. Quote, bad pumpkin spice products shouldn't happen to good people, unquote, announced Dave Skena, marketing officer for Krispy Kreme Donut, in a press release. Quote, if you've been impacted by the proliferation of pumpkin spice products that don't make sense, come, by, come to Krispy Kreme and we'll make it all better with a free pumpkin spice donut, unquote. Is he talking about CeCe's Pizza's pumpkin spice cinnamon rolls, IHOP's pumpkin spice pancakes, or Wendy's pumpkin spice frosty? My advice is to stop the madness and have a cup of spicy chai instead. Sherpa chai, bhakti chai, boulder tea house chai, third street chai, sanctuary chai, kucha house of tea, and dots diner chai are all made in boulder. Words to chew on, the satanic lattes. Quote, it hurts my heart to say these words. The specter of pumpkin spice, it's like a demonic possession, pumpkin spice everything, pumpkin spice flavored shoes, pumpkin spice BLTs, unquote, from Anne Lamott. If you love the restaurants and bakeries in Longmont, Louisville, Lafayette, and beyond, fill out your ballot for Boulder Weekly's Best of Boulder East County Awards by September 23. Never mind. Thank you for joining us for the Boulder Weekly. My name is Eric Levine. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at 
www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.